Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Bunny Bunnies! With Jenny Winter. Hello, howdy, g'day. Insert your own intro. My name is Jenny Winter. I'm a comedian, a mother, stepmother... Basically, I've got six billion children, and uh, also in my life, I've got a Labrador, two little kittens, and definitely some cockroaches. And this, the Funny Mummies Podcast. Welcome, Mandy. Oh, hello, Ginny. Nice to chat. I'm so happy to chat with you. Now, I have been absolutely uh, devouring your latest book, which is called The Full Mandy, and it's a compilation, basically, of all your incredible columns that you've written over the last couple of decades. And, um, oh, my gosh, and I laughed so hard, and particularly I loved how the way you described your blended family as being – I remember that you had this phrase about uh, your Medicare card looks more like a census because of all the different surnames and stuff – uh, so I just, I'm so excited to talk to you. I thought maybe for people who aren't familiar with you, could you just take us through a bit about your family makeup and yeah, a bit about who you are? Like who is, who is Mandy Nolan? Uh, Mandy Nolan is a stand-up comedian, but firstly, of course, she, and a writer and a, um, been a bit of a journalist and sort of opinion maker in my community, which is the Byron Shire. I live in Mullumbimby. I am a mother of five children from three marriages, um, full-time relationships, um, including one of those is a stepdaughter, not a biologically mine. They range from the age of now from 11 to 25. Um, only one child is related to all the other people in the family and that's my new daughter Ivy. I went, why she's our genetic code. So I am part of this kind of big, weird family of fathers and and children. We have a and we have like this Christmas I a joke that we had um I had four out of five kids home and I had two out of three fathers present. because um, one of the fathers was in Bali. It was like an attendance role. Like uh, and, and one of the great things when we did one, my daughter's 21st down in Melbourne earlier this year before COVID hit, we had five out of five kids and three out of three dads. And I went, that is good. Uh, and not even just that, I had another kid who's my first ex-husband's next partner's son, who's sort of been brought into the fold as well. So he's, you know, he's my daughter's kind of um, brother. And so we yeah. kind of pull him in as well. So it's kind of fun doing that. I kind of... You know, it doesn't mean you all sit around in a circle kind of cuddling, playing the drums. People have this, you know, I just think when you, for me, changing who we are because I've and, and, you know, being a radical feminist or being a feminist and looking at the way we change things, it was never just about changing the way we do um, me as a woman and how I am in society, I'm like, well, what about all the roles that we occupy as mother and as partner and why are all these relationship 
you know, there seem to be these really staid ways that you're supposed to be in a relationship. Like relationships are forever. And if you break it, then you have fucked up and you're, and you've broken it and you're terrible. Um, if people, so there's that and you've ruined the family. And then if you, you know, have a divorce or a separation, you must hate each other then forever. Um, and create like, you know how there's those kind of things where you feel like there's an expectation to do that. And I went, wow, we really have to subvert those ideas and those relationships and those ideas about ourselves and look honestly I could have stayed you know my relationship with my first husband was fraught he was an addict you know there were fairly intense moments and at times there was violence and because I'm we share kids it's been quite an amazing process to go through um, what we needed to go through to deal with had to be dealt with and to start again so the kids we could have a relationship it doesn't negate what's happened but it moves you forward and it takes you out of that horrible place of um hatred and antagonism and you know allows the kids to have a relationship with their father without me bitching about them all the time yeah which is so important for the kids as well because I mean, no matter how you feel about your partner or your ex-partner, rather, that parent is still half of them. They're still half of your child. So, I I mean, I guess if you're bitching and moaning about the ex, then you're really bitching and moaning about half of your child uh, as well. Uh, Can I just ask, so Mandy, I mean, obviously what you've achieved with your blended family doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, Can you just talk a bit like how have you and your ex kind of moved towards that? you know, or with your big blended family, I, I imagine trying to get to that place is a bit of a conscious choice. Like how do you guys keep that? Yeah. Keeping, keep it nice. Yeah. We kind of did that. You know, it's kind of like, we, we it, sometimes it's just by going, look, it's Christmas, you know, should we ask that particular person that, that the, one of the dads for Christmas, now, can we handle that? And then if we do that, get the other dad, like not everybody wants to be, you know, but as you do it more, it becomes more normal. Like the first couple of times you do it, it feels weird and it's a bit uncomfortable. And then as you do it more, um, you know, because for birthdays and stuff, it's always going to happen where you have to interact. There's always social occasions where you have to interact. It's so much better in the long term for the kids and for you if all those rifts and things have kind of been healed and you've, rather than that thing, you know, often people are getting married and they'll go, oh my God, I've got to have my mum you know, and my, my dad and they've been divorced and they don't speak to each other. And you can feel this kind of the, the, the kind of the weight of that sort of sitting on top of, you know, any event that, and it kind of makes it all about you then and not about them. Like it becomes about your antagonism. So yeah, you just practice it. Like, it's amazing. I don't, I can never understand how people stay angry at people, even when they're, because I just forget what I'm angry at people. I wouldn't even know what I was fighting about. Like it's, it's, such a lot of energy to invest in hating people like you go you don't have to be their best friend but to you know to create that constant antagonism is exhausting yeah and to be fair I mean you must be one of the most uh, prolific creators certainly that I've ever met and let alone with your incredibly busy family I imagine that you just honestly don't even have the space for anger in your life I mean you know where would you put it no there's no time You'd have to schedule it. I'm going to be angry on you would. Thursday. I'm going to be resentful and bitter. Uh, <laughs> then I'm like, ten to ten twenty, no further. 
I know, because you've got to have a long time. You've got to send off emails. You've got to have not responding people. You've got to work out your passive-aggressive techniques of really making people feel your wrath. There's no point hating people if they don't know. You've got to really get the right. You've got to get the wrath out there. Um, yeah. Oh, you do have to commit. And then what you've got to do is you have to ruin every social occasion by constantly talking about the same stuff you've been speaking about for 10 years over and over and over again, um, you know, which is, you know how you do that where you go, oh, I just don't want to be that person banging on about why someone's a terrible person or what, hap- what happened to me because it puts you in that victim mode and I, went, I just so don't want to be a victim. You know, I'm good. We'll deal with it. Whatever happened in the past happened and now we move on. Yeah, and I mean, without putting you on too much of a pedestal, Mandy, uh, I mean, you have achieved just some unbelievable things, so many amazing things, and not that life's about just what you do, but, you know, I think you have put so much great stuff into this world and now that you're talking about this like of course you're not stuck on old gripes because I mean if you were then how could you possibly move forward I mean you can't move forward can you if you're just digging down into this old shit exactly you can't do that you've got to it's part of living where I live I guess even though I make fun of all the hippies in the new age part of the kind of philosophy of you know letting go it's actually quite good actually yeah, it's so great because, I mean, I've come down and performed with you guys a lot in your beautiful corner of the world, which I just love. And I think it's just so amazing because what you've done is, I mean, you've built this community of people who are so behind your work and love what you do, uh, even though, you know, a lot of the time you are mercilessly yeah. taking the piss out of, you know, the whole vibe of the area and some of that, you know, the hippie dip shit stuff that goes on. But people just love you for that. and. I think the reason is that because you're never cruel about it. It's never like you're tearing people a new one. It's done with genuine love and affection. And, yeah, I think that's just. It's love. You know how when it's that way you tease people. You know how it's funny with your own community. Like sometimes people do take offence when you have a go. But not with fun. And I always say, you know how when you really, someone that you're really fond of and that way you rag on them or the thing, you tease them like they're part of the family but they have got some odd quirky bits and they're the people that you have a bit of a go at. That's kind of what you try and do. Um, yeah, so, you know, all good. It's one of the um, – I mean, I think it's just so fascinating. Like you started stand-up when you were in your early 20s, is that right? Uh, 17. You were 17? Yeah, way before children. Oh, wow. So, so started, that you started before children? Oh, yeah, children came along when I was 28, so I'd already been at it for 10 years by then. So I started – Ten years ago, well, what, ten years ago? Ten years ago when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Still haven't had a child yet. I can't remember who I am now. No, I started when I was um, I, I was in Brisbane. I was at Queensland Uni um, and I did that thing that a lot of people, you know, it's kind of, it, it is a bit of one of the ways that used to be finding a way to stand up was through university review. It was just being involved in university theatre production, you know, I was a feminist. I was in a feminist cabaret where I did a funny, well, probably was a comedic piece as a solo piece and someone saw it and then booked me for a comedy room because, you know, comedy was just emerging. I think Paul Brash was the only other comic in Brisbane at that time. And wow. Yeah, and, and that was about it. And then I started performing at the Story Bridge Hotel. They used to do poetry and stuff there and I started performing there as a comic and that would have been in the mid-'80s. Um, mid to just a, I don't know, 86, 87, performed at Livid Festivals, got together with a um, 
as feminist stand-up sort of cabaret group called the Ugly Sisters, and we did about three years of very political, intense comedy. But it was really fun. It was kind of like having a tribe of women around you. So I was doing stand-up and kind of he was kind of more like the, you know, Doug Anthony All-Stars inspired style, not saying we were them, but feminist styled weird performance and it was great and that was kind of how I started um it's totally different um starting in comedy then I always laugh backstage when open micers come back and they go oh my god that was so hard and you're going oh yeah that was hard like it's never it's never <laughs> hard like wait, man that is not hard and you feel like it- those hard early gigs it's like you know nothing's hard now nothing is ever gonna no, you've got to go I just feel like an arsehole sitting there. Oh, they didn't like you. Oh, they must be terrible. And they didn't laugh at your jokes. Now, let me just check. Did anyone threaten to beat you in the car park? Did someone throw – are you bleeding? Did someone throw something at your head? It was so, – when I started, it was it was so adversarial. Nobody really knew what comedy was. There were the, virtually no women doing it. And people were just out to destroy you. It was really hard. So what kept you going through that? I mean, like, how did you push through that, Mandy? Because I guess, I mean, I'm learning so much about you by reading your book, but in that you actually say that conflict makes you cry. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, how how did you keep going? Um, I, I don't cry from conflict anymore because I've become really good at it. I used to. I used to really rattle me, um, but I just practice it a lot more. And when I say practice conflict, I don't mean by actually stopping in the street and having a go at people. I mean that that you don't back away from situations and then when you get into conflict that you can manage it without elevating it into this point where you're yelling and screaming or that you, you learn how to handle um, when someone starts. And it's the best thing I learned in stand-up is that I, I just don't get rattled by what people do in an audience. And they when you, they know that, they kind of trust you, so it very rarely happens. But... I don't even know why I kept going. I just, I wasn't even, to tell you the truth, I find it so bizarre now how many people want to be stand-up comics because it, it was just never something, it was never an intention of mine to be a stand-up comic. I never meant to be one. It was, I never started out saying this is what I wanted to do. It was just the easiest thing to do that I could do because I wanted to perform when I couldn't get roles doing anything else. I just wanted to keep myself working. I, I certainly never, and I, and I never, it's one of those weird things about calling yourself a comedian. I, I didn't call myself a comedian until I was working full-time professionally as a comedian. I would say I do comedy, I'm doing this, and I, think, I actually think that's really important because I think you work really hard to become a professional comic and when you are living off your income, you are a professional comic. But when you're turning up to open mics and you're in that early stage, you're sort of like in your apprenticeship. So you are an aspiring comic. You are you are you're hoping to. Do you know what I mean? I think there's a really clear distinction in doing that because otherwise there's no passage for you. There's nowhere to go to because you and you aren't really already doing it. You have to learn. But um, and that gives you something to aspire towards. It's a big day when you can actually call yourself a comedian and that's exactly who you are. Um. Because otherwise you just feel like a wanker, like you're going, no, not really, because you have to defend it. I, I, I always felt like that. So I, I found it really weird because I became a comic by accident um, because then one day I went, oh, God, I think I'm a comedian. Cause... Did you ever think about not doing that and changing or was it like once you'd started, that was that, you were bitten, 
keep going? Well, I was always doing other stuff, but for some reason, as much as I tried to leave it behind me, which I have many times, to push it away, it always came back at me, you know, through I'd get a really great offer to do something or, you know, and I'd go, oh, I'll do that, and then it would lead to a few other things. And I'd, as much as I'd take something else on, it would just keep going. I'd try to cut it back and not do it anymore. I'd stop for a year, keep, you know, then it would be back at me. It was a bit of a – and I enjoyed it. I love it. You know, I absolutely – now I absolutely love it. It's such a part of it. And I went, oh, I think for me it's, it's just part of who I am now. And it's not even really like a – it's weird to think of it as my career because I just think of it as part of who I am when I when when I'm in, it, artistically. It's very natural of of finding your voice and then being in your flow. But it was it was a process like, and it it wasn't just about laughter. It wasn't even just about that. It was about ideas and it was about um, trying to bring people across to sometimes the way you see the world. Um, if it was just about jokes, it just just not enough. Yeah, and you want to have something to say. I wanted to have something to say, and I went now because as a feminist, I'd start off, and I was such a preachy feminist. I mean, it was, you know, all I did was, you know, I, I, all the people that had the same politics as me would clap and cheer, and anyone else would go fucking feminist, fucking whatever. And I went, wow, I really have to bring them across. So I always love the fact that when I do gigs now, the, you know, I'm really good at bringing those people across now in the sense that they don't even know what they're watching and the thing they go, that's fucking funny. And you're going, yeah, you're laughing at feminist politics, dickhead. Um, mm-hmm. Did you, did you realize that? And I kind of love that. I didn't, I didn't ever know how I was going to do that. And it's really satisfying doing that because you are, you know, that just for me, that was important. And I, I think I'd struggle if I was a white man doing comedy because I'd still want to have something bigger that I was doing it for rather than, you know, and I don't say white men don't have issues. I think, you know, well, they've got lots of issues, but political issues or, a, or an agenda or something that powers them beyond the own narcissism of your own voice. Yes. But, and, you know, it can be a very uh, narcissistic uh, occupation as well. Yeah. Well, it's such a narcissistic career. I know. You sit backstage sometimes and you go, can you listen to us all talking about ourselves? Like... <laughs> I know. Well, and, you know, there's a number of people who I love very, very dearly but uh, will never ask you a question about yourself, ever. No, never, never. Or ask you and start answering it. Like, you go, wow, that is, um, you kind of get used to that. That's sort of part of our dysfunction of our, and we're all kind of guilty. And it's so funny. Sometimes I watch people on stage and I'm like, God, I have to be really aware when I do that. And one of the greater things when you get older is you feel like, even when you're not, you feel like you, you, you know how much less you know. But you feel like you, you can at least say some things with some authority now because you've lived. And it's so funny when you sort of watch it, it's so hard when you see younger comics kind of talking about like they're really old and they're like 23, you know. <laughs> you go, you're kind of not really old and that's probably not. But, you know, that's always that's always quite funny. But, you know, oh, yeah, narcissism is what we do. It's, um, it's a trap. You've really, I think you've got to be really aware of it because, you know, mm, I do too. And I'm just wondering, it's really interesting hearing you talk about your motivations for staying in comedy, which I guess for you is, you know, something other than narcissism. And I'm just wondering whether it's that impulse to have a bigger purpose 
to being on stage for you? Is that what kept you going? You know, is that, is that what kept you there and willing to go through the chaos of, you know, what is juggling a life in comedy and family? Yeah, all, all my stuff, I started off in political theatre, 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 political stuff where I was doing like, you know, women's, I was doing feminist theatre and it always had a really strong agenda. And so there was always a bigger, a bigger thing there. For me it was about then trying to go, well, let's get out of the fringe into the mainstream so I can still and, and make my work twig it so I can work to a mainstream audience but still get them to think about things that they mightn't have thought about in a certain way before. And that, and that, does, that does actually really drive me. Um, and I don't know whether that drives everything I do. It kind of independes everything I write. It, and I always, you, you, I don't know whether you feel like you want to have, always feel like there's conversations that sit outside, you know, the, the dominant narrative where they're more marginalised and, and they're the ones you want to bring, you want to pull them down and, and you get that lovely thing afterwards where people go, oh, my God, that's what I think. I think that that's you just said that. And so sometimes you want to be saying things that maybe aren't said or you want to be a, showing voices and on stage. Like recently I was in um, Sydney, I was doing headline at the Comedy Store and it's always interesting when you do that and it's, it's just the nature of our industry. I think I was on with about really lovely young guys too, talented young blokes doing comedy, all young blokes, except on one night um, Julia Wilson was the MC, but all young blokes. And that's kind of dominant. It's still what comedy is. And and they were really funny. Their material's great. You know, their, their, their stuff's, I would say, smart, up-and-coming, interesting voices. And then I come on at the end and I'm like, you know, the oldest person would have been 30 out of those comments I'm like 52 and I come on I'm like so like the like and, and next on is the old mum <laughs> it was such a funny feeling but but it, I mean, it did feel like you kind of go and and because you know we, we are still exceptionalized in that way um mm-hmm. but can you imagine the opposite imagine a show where there's like a lineup of seven people because they always have a bit of a gala and of those seven people Six of them are old mums. Oh, I can just hear a phone going off. That's all right. Six are old mums. It's one of the kids just wanting to um, find out whether I can put money in their bank account probably. Six, six, yeah, six of them are old mums and uh, one is a young bloke of 25. Like you, you'd never have the normalised six, six not like old, old, but, you know, six older women. Um it's not even just that you're a woman in comedy. It's, that it's also that you're an older woman in comedy as well, that like you're not 25 or, or 30 where you're, sort of cons- you know, you're still in there um, with some currency. So, you know, I'm also finding now I went through comedy at a time when women were um, much more, um, it, it was a lot harder as a woman to be a co- comedian, to be, to hold your space and not to be go, oh no, not a woman, or you be, you know. But so now it's got a lot better. There's more women starting to come through, and now yeah. you're you're up against ageism, older women. Like, well, we've only got one space in the, well, we've only got one space in the narrative for a funny older woman. Like you sort of find yourself going, well, we don't all think the same. We all do have different points of views. Just because we're older and women doesn't mean we have the same brain. Yes, that's right. You know, Denise Scott says is different to what Fiona Lachlan says, is different to what Kitty Flanagan says, is different to what you say or what I say. So I think we're still, I think we're still, our existence is political in comedy and we're still forging ahead to create space 
um, for conversations and ideas and points of view that won't be there if we're not there. Oh, gosh, I love that. Our existence is political. Because oh, one of the things that I hate about myself, um, yeah, let's talk about self-loathing. <laughs> That's exactly where I wanted right. this conversation to go. Um, but one of the things I get really frustrated about is because I feel like I still haven't explored the depths of what I really want to say yeah. on stage, you know, because I feel like so often I guess I just settle on stage for saying stuff that I know will get a laugh, that I know yeah. is amusing and you know, and it is amusing and I find it amusing, but I guess I just feel like there's a lot of things that I really would like to say, but just getting the balls to actually say those on stage, I guess is the next step for me. And I think added to that, I keep falling in and out of love with stand up actually, which I think makes that a little bit harder, but I find it incredibly um, motivating actually to hear you talking about this. Cause without, I mean, without you enabling my laziness, I guess I love that idea that just even my being there on stage is something. Well, it's totally something. And it is like, you know, there's certainly times where you go, Oh my God, what am I doing this for? Why am I going out and doing this gig, performing to people that I'm spending the best night of the week. And all my friends are at my other friend's place at the party where I want to be. But here I am in this room with people that I don't even really want to speak to. And yet I'm performing. But, yeah, those nights when you're going, what am I doing this for? Um, Yeah, and I wanted to ask, I mean, Mandy, I think that is just so true of anybody doing comedy uh, full stop is, you know, because it can be very brutal. Well, in fact, I mean, anybody in the arts, I think you have moments of, you know, why am I doing this? But I think when you're a mum with a family, you know, it does add another layer to that, which is, not just, you know, why am I doing this, but why am I doing this when I should maybe be back at home, which, you know, obviously comes into that idea of these traditional roles that society still implies and pressures us into fitting neatly into. And I just wanted to read out this fabulous bit from your book, which really resonated with me when you're talking about that juggle of family and comedy. So here we go. I missed stuff. I was distracted. I'm a working mum, stuck in this treadmill of guilt that I'm failing both as a parent and in my career. It's hard to be amazing at both. I tried. I turned up a few times to help in guided reading during the kindergarten years. I remember trying to act like a mum who was interested, but my eyes kept drifting towards the clock, wondering when the punishment of listening to someone else's illiterate kid would be over. (laughs) I just read that and I was like, I just want to high five you because I have absolutely been that person. Um, (laughs) going to the reading groups. And I mean, I really went to reading groups out of complete guilt because I only did it with my third child. And the reason I did was because I didn't do it with my first and second. And um, I would just love to hear more from you about, you know, now that, you know, your kids are a bit older, how have you processed those feelings of guilt and missing things and the compromises that you, you know, and your kids have had to make? Um, It's always... I think that's always one of the more complex things because I, I can't work out sometimes the difference between uh, what is socially expected of me, what, what comes from these ideas about what women are supposed to do as mothers and what is inherent to what I want to actually be and, and what my kid would like for me in that relationship. So you're always something in that. And I think for me it was, I definitely feel like I've missed out on a lot of stuff. I've been present for a lot of stuff as well and I've been a really good mother in a lot of areas. I've also have been an absent mother 
in a lot of it. My kids make jokes about me all the time. Go, oh, it's typical talking to mum. And you know how people make fun of their kids for being on their devices? I'm on my devices all the time. And they'll go to tell me something and I'm the one that not, I'm like the kid that's not listening, going, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yes, I, I'm guilty of that too. And I know, and it's, it. I think um, it's a really hard when you're, you know, you're in a creative industry where it involves an enormous amount of focus and self-discipline, creativity, application, um, and the way you have to keep yourself available, not from nine to five, all the time. Like you're kind of on all the time. Even when you're not on at home, something will happen. You go, oh, God, I've got to do this. I have to do that. So it's not like I, I never turn off, you know, and I think my kids have all paid the price for that and the fact that, you know, they know that that's what I'm like. And I'd say if they went to um, therapy about me, I'm sure they will, and probably some of them already doing it, that's what will come up. It isn't that I haven't been a loving, dedicated, um, absolutely accept them for the who they are mother and I I don't know how to bridge that gap in there I don't know if there is um any way to say except I've done the best that I can and then I and I can do as a mother I as a person there are things that I want in my life and I think as women it's been hard because we're held under the microscope so much when we make decisions and choices about ourselves and about our lives as individuals as well as lives, as our decisions, as as our families, in a way that men aren't. And I'm a, I'm a I'm a breadwinner in this family too, and I have to sustain my career and what I do. Otherwise, there, I won't be earning anything. Um, there's all of that sort of stuff. So it's I, I'd say you know it is that thing that men are never asked the questions that we're asked about where are the kids oh don't you get upset being away from them so much how do you manage it what are the impacts on the kids um all that kind of stuff and by asking me those questions I get upset but I know other people are asking my kids those questions their their friend that's what pisses me off the most and that creates an expectation um too you know Honestly, nobody asks it about fathers that travel for work. They just go, oh. Oh, never, never. I mean, I, I've travelled with so many dad comedians. I mean, gosh, dad comedians, wouldn't that be great if that was a term? But I have never once heard anybody ask them, you know, where are the kids or who's looking after kids? Like, ever. Never. I know. And, and that really shows less about, I think that's more about our societal role still of, of how much we still expect women as primary carers to wear the brunt of of of, um, of the load, and you can't expect women to have parity in industries across the workplace unless you actually start to actually share that responsibility with the other parent. Um, so it's not just left to them. I wonder what happens. I always wonder what happens with two mums, two mums, both working mums. Like you go like. They must really cop it then. Like they don't even have one person in the relationship that can actually take the slack of going, well, I can do whatever the fuck I want. Um, yeah. And I think it is, I think it's really hard. And you know the whole thing is it's always like there was this idyllic way once that parents um, brought kids up. And I can tell you one thing, I may not be there in the same way another generation of parents weren't there in time, 
Like in, I might not be there with cookies at the end of the day. You know, I may not be turning up, you know, waiting with my, you know, motor running to pick you up. I might make you get the bus. But I tell you what, if something happens in your life, I am so available to those, to those young people. I'm loving and caring and I'm not trying to change who they are in a way that that generation that were totally present, very all present, they were present in that way, they were there. But were they there? You know, were they? Did, did they not try to put their own beliefs and stuff onto their kids, you know, around their sexuality and what they did and how they lived their lives? I mean, just because you're a 100% their mum and from, from that old school of belief, you know, often those women were miserable, um, you know, living these half-lived lives. And, you know, you live with a mum who looks like she's miserable and hating every minute of it. That's not a message you need to get either. Better off having, yeah. No. Preaching it out. Oh my God, Mandy, preach, preach it, baby. Wow. Um. Now, look, I will wrap up shortly, but before we go, I just, I actually really, I have to confess something to you. Okay. Oh. Um. Many, many moons ago, uh, I came to your house, yeah. and I can't even remember. Somebody brought me to your house. Um. And anyway, as I was coming into your house, I was thinking to myself, okay, Mandy Nolan, her house is bound to be a catastrophe because I know that mine certainly was. And I was like, well, I can't get this shit on stage and all these things I'm trying to achieve done and have the house intact. It's just not possible. Anyway, we walk in and your house is just gorgeously spotless and welcoming and lovely. And uh, I think it was like 10 in the morning and you were already there just chopping chicken on the kitchen bench and you got the slow cooker going. And I was like, holy (laughs) shit, like who is this paragon of organisation? And I guess I was just like, how the heck? I could not wrap my head around it. Uh, And I love in the book, there's this part of your book, I'm not going to give away all the spoils in your book, but you're talking about uh, trying to give up house cleaning. And there's this quote in there, which I love. It says, I'll be dead soon. I don't want to lie on my deathbed thinking, fuck, I wish I'd cleaned the fan. Although if I am dying and I have to look at a dusty fan, I know it will shit me. <laughs> like 100%. And I just wanted to ask you quickly, um, where are you now when it comes to housework and stuff? And I mean, we're not, obviously this is not meant to be any kind of life hacky podcast, but I know that I would certainly appreciate, as I'm sure what other people out there, any tips that you have? Are there any like miracle genius little tidbits of cutting corners that you have that, uh, yeah, help you achieve that? I've done all that. Um, I, I still have, you know, part of the way I, I have a real thing like at the moment, I've had kids coming and going. I've got a, you know, I've had guests and kids all through Christmas and their boyfriends and friends. And so I've had to, I have to learn to accept a certain amount of chaos. Part of my thing of how I keep myself um, feeling like I'm in control of things is I have to control my environment. So I'll be like, I just need to have this bench clear. I need to do this. I need to have that. But then I have to not go into meltdown. That's my main, I'm the opposite. And and it's not, it's more about how I feel I can cope because if I, because I have limited time, if my house and where I live gets out of control, I feel like I'm never going to be able to pull it back in. So at various times, I have to admit it's a bit sad. I had cleaners for a couple of years, but I haven't since COVID because I wasn't earning as much, so I let that go. That was wonderful. I really recommend that tip. Um, it was really, it was really great. <laughs> get professional help, and that meant I still did lots of housework and cleaning. Um, I always get the kids to help out as much as they can, um, and then I'll just do like I, I kind of work. I kind of shut my office off. I do my work, and then when I come out, 
you know, I'll probably do two, three hours a day of just fussing around, just putting things away generally. I, I just have a little, like just a bit of order. Do you have order around your work schedule as well? Like are you like, these are my hours, this is when I'm working, or is it more ad hoc? Um, I don't. I, I treat every day like a work day. Like every, I have a diary. I, I, I don't even think about it. It's like I sit at my desk from pretty well 8 o'clock in the morning till about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I might get every day and I might get up, I might, I'll have meetings, I might get up and put a load of washing on in the minute of that because what I'll do so I don't get, um, you know, it's actually quite good to break your, every hour or two I'll get up and do 10 minutes or something. I might put a load of washing on. It means you actually really look forward to the washing. So it's probably what people used to do when they smoke. You'd have a ciggy, but I just do, like I might unpack the dishwasher and then I'll go back and then I might do... So I've done something that takes five or ten minutes and then I go back to work and I get stuck in my work and then I go out for five or ten minutes. I do that all day and that's why I love working from home. So, you know, during a day I will have done a little bit to get organised um, but I, I stick within the um, pretty solid work schedule every day. Like I'm I'm almost seven days sometimes. I'm at my computer most days. I try to do, I try, what I have to do is try and do one day a week where I don't but because I'm on deadline every week writing stories for various publications and you know the deadline means you you know you've got to have it done so sometimes as much as you want to have a day off when there's no day to have off you just gotta work yeah suck it up um look I could just talk forever to you Mandy Nolan um but before we go I just want to do I've got a quick rapid fire five quick questions for you um question number one what is the one person living or dead if you had to choose to have dinner with who would it be oh Jacinda Arden oh yes gosh yes good one and I mean hasn't she just proven herself over the last 12 months or so yeah I'm really I'm just really interested how you know She's brought a real level of compassion and, and kindness to to a place where there is so little, you know, and she's maintained that because very often what happens is, you know, that's kind of delegitimised and told that's not what politics is about. So I'm, I mean, I would love to talk to her about that. The best way to deal with passive aggression? Um, to, I think, oh God, it really gets me. You know what? It's not the best way. It makes me really aggressive. Um, so I find, um, you know, pretty well, um, taking it on head on. I always go, I always go, people do that. I go, let's go. You're being really passive aggressive. Why are you saying that? And that really annoys them. Like passive aggressives do not like being told they're passive aggressive. It's true, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing about passive aggression is it's putting the pressure the pressure on you to look like the arsehole of your god. Yeah, and when you when you say it to them, they go then they get they go from passive aggressive to aggressive aggressive, and then you go, okay, now you're doing something I can deal with. Okay, let's go, game on. <laughs> um, the best advice you've ever gotten? Uh, I think the best advice I've ever gotten. That's a good question because I go, oh. I'm not really sure about that. Actually, I had a really lovely friend when I had kids and she was such a stoner mum. And she goes, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You can smoke a joint. It's fine. And then when, you, when you're breastfeeding, and then <laughs> um, it was great. It got me through, but probably was not really true. <laughs> but it was... At the, at the time, it was the best advice. I went, oh, right, she would know because she's 10 years older than me. 
Um, surely. Well, this will be interesting then. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Um, the worst advice I've ever gotten is, um, oh, it's a really good thing about doing, oh, look, um, it's not funny, I'm trying to think about the worst advice I've ever gotten. Um, or just shit advice you've had. Well, it could well be around, well, well, I guess it was, well, shit advice was, um, well, usually from the accountant, um, <laughs> always that advice that you really should be putting some money away every week you really should have a super and I went should I that's probably good advice but I think it's I'm like that's just not it's just not gonna happen like if it's just not gonna happen like when I owe because I'm always paying off my tax you know I always have it always call the tax department and go okay let's make this arrangement because I have I need to pay it because let's get it I don't want you to get to me I want to get on top of it you know, because when you work for yourself, it's you don't have any money to project into the future to keep your business going. So you have to run it. And then it's quite funny. Recently, the guy goes, "Guys, can I just ask you why you don't? Why we haven't? Why you know? Why you know, we have to ask you why? Why you have to go into a tax payment?" I went, "Yeah." I went, "Because I'm a comedian. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm really. I'm not." Like, not an accountant. And I said, and I said it's, it's just, you know, I said you've got to keep your business going months into the future. And sometimes people don't pay you for six weeks. And so, and I said, I'm sorry. It all, it's, I don't, I said, I do not have a, an account full of spare money. Oh, that's my spare money. So, um, yeah, that's always been. But yeah, I'll tell you what, I always, something I actually have learned was to, you know, I always make sure that I'm proactive in making sure. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I make allocations to actually pay stuff off so that I'm on top of it because there's nothing worse than that feeling that you've got this looming debt over you that you just fall into. And actually the best thing you can ever do is is actually take it on, find a way to actually deal with it and pay it. It's such a good feeling when you get rid of it like that. Like it's really good. <laughs> I'm just tickled at the thought that uh, the shit advice is really just the good advice that you don't really want to take. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Uh, you really are 27 years young, Mandy. I really am. Uh, now, final question. Mandy Nolan, what would you like to have written on your tombstone? I would say, here lies Mandy Nolan. She was amazing when she stood up. <laughs> I don't know. I should say, here lies Mandy Nolan. You should have seen her stand up. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh, look, Mandy, thank you so, so much. It's just been absolutely delightful, as always, to chat with you. Now, uh, where can people find you online? So mandynolan.com, I'm assuming. Uh, where, where do you prefer people to find you? Uh, usually um, you can send me a Facebook message. A message. Just, I think it's mandynolan.com.au or the OU on there. But you can, if you find, go to my website, you can email me. You can um, come onto my Facebook page. That's always a good place to go and drop me a line. I'm very responsive, so come and say hi. Fabouche, thank you so much, Mandy. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Jenny. Bye. See ya. I just love her so very much. She is just an absolute godsend. And I'm so excited because 
look, I'm swallowing my words. Since we recorded that interview, I think it was literally two days after we spoke, Mandy got officially selected as the Greens candidate for Richmond, which is such an exciting development. O to the M to the Greens. You should jump on if you want to find out more. Uh, MandyNolan.com.au. I'm sure we'll have info, but there's also a special website, MandyForRichmond.com. Listen, I'm not here to be political, but if I were, if I were here to be political, which I'm not, but if I were, I would say vote for Mandy, like for reals, because her beliefs very much align with my own. And what are we, if not one big bubble where all of the things that we're hearing are what we want to hear? Yeah. Welcome to my bubble. Ah, Amazing. Mandy! Go check her out. Thank you so much. What a great interview. I love you guys. I love this podcast. Woo! Thank you so much for joining us on the Funny Mummies podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you join our group on Facebook, the Funny Mummies group. Also, we have funnymummies.com, which has upcoming gigs, shows, fun stuff. You can find me, Jenny Winter, which is W-Y. N-T-E-R. Why? Because I can. At JennyWinter.com. You can find me on Facebook at Jenny Winter Comedian, Instagram at Jen Winter. And your child could be the voice on this podcast. So if your child would like to say, with Jenny Winter, record that as a voice memo, send it through to me. You can either send it via the Facebook group or via my website and they could be the voice on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening and I hope that you find some funny in your day. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's the Bonnie Jenny Winter. Cassie Bear. Mm. My child. <laughs> my son. My darling man. Oh, baby, shut up. Cassidy, my darling, <laughs> my sweet, precious one, love of my life. Ja- Boobie, shush! My sweet, darling son, fruit of my loins, love of my life. Boobie, shush! You're ruining the recording. My darling son, tell me the one thing you would like to tell your mother on the eve of the night of your four, your twelfth anniversary of birth. We should probably take another recording. Okay. You're right, that's shit. <laughs>